Lord Jesus, we thank you for, uh, for another Sunday. We thank you also for this long weekend in which we could celebrate our heritage in, in this country, Lord. And I pray in a, in a country that's so often divided that this day, even if it is a bit artificial, that it will lead to us coming a little bit closer together. And, yeah, Lord, we, we also know that it, it can be a little bit difficult when we've had a long weekend and we need to focus for tomorrow and get back into the groove of things. Lord, I pray that, that we will be energized for this week ahead, that you will give us vision, uh, that we will be excited, that we will, those of us who, who do have a job, that we will see it as a privilege. And, uh, and, yeah, that we will be able to get something from you this evening, Lord, that we will be able to encounter your presence, that we will experience you in the worship, in the service, in the community with each other. Um, yeah, Lord, you are the reason why we are here. And it is in your name that we pray, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, we are busy with this series. I'm not always sure if you guys know that we are busy with the series, so I always feel like I need to remind you that we're busy with the series. But, but we're talking about the essentials of the faith. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? And we've already spoken about the Trinity, uh, which, is, which is core to, to being a Christian, uh, the, the Trinitarian understanding of who God is. And we spoke about sin, the fact that there's something wrong, and the Messiah had to come into this uh, world, and uh, God had to solve this issue of, of sin. But what's interesting is that the, the, the essential that we are looking at this evening is probably one of the most overlooked essentials. And it has to do partly with the fact that much of the Christianity that we practice, at least in this part of the world, is based on, on the Apostles' Creed. Some of you might have heard of the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in a traditional church, you had to say it a couple of times on a Sunday. But basically it says that you know, we believe in God the Father, the Creator of heaven and earth. And then um, very quickly we jump over to, uh, to, to Jesus. And the fact that he was born under Pontius, well, no, he was born from the Virgin Mary, and that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and that he was was resurrected. Now, all of those things are great and true, but the problem is we skip over most of our Bible when we when we do that. Does that make sense? We we miss out pretty much everything between Genesis four from Genesis four until the Gospels begin. And we also don't, we, we, we struggle to make sense of the rest of Jesus' ministry. We can make sense of his birth and we can make sense of his death and resurrection, but we don't always know what to make of his ministry that we have. In other words, the majority of the Gospels. And what we're going to do today, I hope, is to reclaim the rest of Scripture and to see how it is important in the life of, of the church. Okay, are you with me? To do that, however, we're going to have to paint in massively broad brushstrokes. So if I lose some of you along the way, just sort of get on board wherever you, you, you can, and, and I'm, I'm sure you will, uh, you, you will get something. But forgive me if I'm going to assume a lot, but we're going to paint in broad brushstrokes. As a matter of fact, I tried to get one of these, these, these boards uh, so that I can play the teacher 
this evening. I couldn't find anything, but it's always been a fantasy of mine to sort of teach the classroom, but uh, alas, we don't have that. Now, we do pretty well when it comes to the creation and the fall. Like I said, that bit we, we, we've specialized in. We, we, we know that God created. We, we, we hear a lot of sermons about that, and we know that mankind has fallen into sin. And then from there, immediately we jump over to Jesus. But, but here, here are the themes that we are supposed to recognize within those stories. So with creation, again, I'm going to assume a lot here, and, and, or, or you must just trust me when I tell you this. In creation, God is creating this little microcosm, this, this world where heaven and earth overlap. In other words, this is a place where God and mankind dwell together. All right? This is paradise. This is Eden. So, again, without going into detail, many would say that this is the temple that God created. And then the last thing that you put in a temple, if you build a temple to Zeus, what is the last thing that you put in a temple? A statue of Zeus. If you build a temple to Aphrodite or, uh, you know, whomever, the last thing you put in the temple is an image of that deity. So, what is the last thing that God puts into his temple in the garden? Mankind. We are created in his image. So, again, this is temple language. But then in the very next chapter, in, in Genesis 3, we see, because of human pride, because of human arrogance, because we want to define reality for ourselves, we lose this intimacy with God. We lose this... Uh, this, this temple, this paradise where heaven and earth overlap. And we are sent into exile. We are outside of the Garden of, of Eden. That's pretty basic, right? I mean, this is Sunday School 101, not Christianity uh, 101. And then we can see what happens when this human dysfunction continues. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother. It's the very next story. After the fall of mankind, what happens? A brother kills a brother. Then after that, one of Cain's descendants is a guy called Lamech, and he brags about guys just looking in his direction, eyeballing him, and then he kills them. And he gets very excited about that. And this human dysfunction continues up to a point that we read that tragic verse that says, and God regretted making mankind. And that's where the story of Noah comes in. Eventually, we've got the Tower of Babel, and then in Genesis 12, we have probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And that is where Abraham is called. Abraham is called. And this is where God, it seems like he is starting over. So we've seen that he created. He created this place where God and mankind can dwell together. We've gone into exile. We've lost that because of our sin, because of our pride, because of our arrogance. And now God is starting over in Genesis 12 when he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing to, to the nations. This is good. This is a nice start. God is starting again. This is creation 2.0. And what happens soon after? Well, Abraham, Father Abraham, is a compromised figure. He goes to Egypt. He lies about his, his wife being his sister, which is a very weird thing to lie about. And he, it, it, it nearly ends there. It, it, it nearly ends the story. Like, uh, and, and Abraham was killed by Pharaoh, and God's rescue mission didn't work. But somehow, God manages to bring Abraham back 
from, from Egypt and him and Sarah are unscathed and his promise remains intact. But what we are supposed to see in that little story of Abraham is the promise, the promise to recapture that, I'm going to use the term sacred space, this idea of, recre- of, 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 of going back to Eden. And it looks like it is lost, but then it's just at the last minute brought back on track. Abraham has a grandson, Jacob. What happens with Jacob? He schemes his way into all sorts of trouble, and he needs to flee. He needs to flee from, from this place that, that his family calls home. And the language there, again, is very appropriate. It said he had to flee to the east. Now, when have we read previously in Genesis when people went to the east? When we were exiled from the garden, and they went east of Eden. And when Cain sins, what happens? And he went further east of Eden. So going east is a way of saying going further and further away from the presence of God. And through a very uh, interesting and comical detour, Jacob ends up back, and it looks like there's, there's some form of reconciliation. It, looked like, it looks like God's plan is still back on track. Remember, what is that master plan? He wants to call this group of people, the Israelites, and he wants to use them as a vehicle to fix what was broken in Genesis 3. Are you with me when I say that? All right. So eventually, not going into the details, they end up in Egypt. And in Egypt, they are in captivity. And there, God calls a leader, Moses, and he tries, he, no, he tries, he's successful in leading these people out of slavery. So, so they are in exile in Egypt, and God leads them to the promised land. And it's a very dodgy moral detour, if you know anything about the story of the Exodus. These guys, I mean, Moses is is about to get the law from God, and then meanwhile, downstairs, these guys are making a golden calf, and things just go pear-shaped over and over again. But eventually, they get to the promised land. Is that the end of the story? Does it say, and they lived happily ever after? No, no, no. They, they came to the promised land by God's grace. But then, probably the high point in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel, is a king. A king that emerged. King David, right? This is a king, a man after God's own heart. King David is now on the scene, and it, it really looks like King David is ruling in a way that is going to, I'm going to use the term, re-Edenize the world. Do you know what I mean when I say that? He is going to be the king who's going to, to with God's help, restore us back to that original design, that harmony that we had in, in the garden. But alas, he has a bit of success. He himself is a very compromised figure. And just two generations after David, something tragic happens, and that is the kingdom splits. So now you have a northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah, and they split. And it's this tragic story, but it it just gets worse because the northern kingdom is now swallowed up by a very strong power of the day called the Assyrian Empire a very vicious empire, their capital city, Nineveh. We read about that in the story of Jonah. And they are swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. And it looks like God's mission has failed again. And in Judah, they are, they are hanging on. And there's this wonderful 
probably the, the best thing that's, that, that, they've rem that they've kept intact all this time is the fact that God is dwelling with them initially in the form of a tabernacle, but then in the form of Solomon's temple. And the temple is literally that place where heaven and earth overlaps, okay? This is, this is the place where, where God and mankind convene. And it is the holiest place for any Jew, right? This is, this is the, the presence of God with them. And it goes reasonably well. But eventually, we read in Ezekiel 10 that God leaves his temple, his spirit abandons the temple. And in beautiful and tragic imagery, we read about this in Ezekiel 10 as, as, as God uh, abandons the temple. And what is the result of sin? What has been the result every time when people walk away from God? What has been the result thus far in this narrative that I sketched? Exile. In the garden, it was exile. It's always losing that space with God. And what happens? Yeah, in the around about 600 BC, the Babylonian Empire comes. And they swallow up the whole of Judah, the whole of that was left of Israel, and they take them back to, to Babylon, which was the, uh, uh, a tactic by these, these empires to, uh, to sort of re-educate them there in their capital city so that they won't have this, this, this Jewish nationalistic uh, sentiment, all right? So the temple is destroyed, God's presence is left, and there at the rivers of Babylon, the Jews mourn. They've lost their sacred space. They've lost their little bit of Eden, I mean, they've already lost most of Eden, but now they've lost the little bit of Eden that they had remaining, and it's very tragic. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. But although they lament and although they mourn there in, in Babylon, there's a king, a Syrian king, that allows them to go back, and they go back to their homeland. And there they are, but they know that something is missing. Something is not right. There's a very real sense in the second temple period, in other words, when they came back from Babylon, that God's presence didn't return to the, to the mountain, to the temple. And one of the reasons why they, they say this is because, well, they are still under foreign rule. So it was the Babylonians that took them away. The Persians allowed them to go back, but the Persian empire is still very much in control. And when the Persians left, who was in control then? The Greeks, then the Greek Empire came. And who took over from the Greeks? The Romans. So for 400 years or so, they've been under foreign rule. So they feel like slaves in their, in their own land. And there's a very real sense that they are still in exile. That even though they are allowed in Jerusalem, even though Herod has, has, and others um, has, has built the temple, there's a very real sense that God is not present, the presence, that the exile is not over. And you can see something of this in the Gospels, that many people in the day didn't feel like the temple reflected anything of God. That's why you had guys like John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River. So he's going rogue and saying, the temple, God is not there. 
and it's corrupt, and you guys are making money of this, and you guys are just pawns in this you know, aristocratic game. God is not in the temple, so he's going there. Those of you who've ever visited Israel, who of you have been in, in, to Israel? Privileged people. Um, I think it was Gior who lifted his hand. Um, so Gior, I don't want to point anybody out, but Gior, uh, you might... You might remember at Qumran, we were at, at Qumran, you had this Qumran sect, and there in the desert, you had these people who abandoned the temple, and there they tried to live and follow God, because they thought that God didn't return to the temple, and the temple is, is corrupt, all right? So they thought that to a large extent, they were still in exile. And whilst they, they have the sense of exile, there was a Jewish hope that, that was very prevalent during this time. And there was a book that they reflected on. And this is the book of, of Daniel that is very much written about, uh, written um, in the context of being in exile and how do you live in exile. And there are, are, are wonderful prophecies in the latter part of the book of Daniel. And the one we, we read in Daniel 7, and uh, this is the passage, Daniel 7, 12 to 14. It reads as follows. The other beasts, he's now talking about the empires that follow the other empires. So he's, he's always talking about a beast that eats a beast that eats a, be that eats a beast. And what he's basically saying is that the uh, Babylonian Empire was uh, swallowed by the Persian Empire, was swallowed by the Greek Empire, was swallowed by the, 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 the Roman Empire. Are you with me? So the other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's a song about this. Do you guys know that song? Um, glory and power, ancient of days. There we go. Uh, this is what you sung all this time, um, is, is Daniel 7. It's good theology. It's not a bad song. Now, here's the message. You have this empire, and then you have another empire, and then you have another empire. But what Daniel is saying here is, ah, you see, but one day this last empire will be destroyed. And who will destroy him? Who will be the one that will, that will have the last say? One like the Son of Man. He is the one that is going to, to come. And that, what is interesting, when the Son of Man comes, he's not just going to, it's not just going to be good news for the Jewish people. According to Daniel 7, it looks like everybody is going to worship him. This is good news globally. Can you see this in, in Daniel 7? Okay. So this is the one thing that excited them, the Son of Man coming. But now many Jews said, but when will this happen? When will the Son of Man come? And we have to turn to Daniel 9 to see that. So in Daniel 9, they thought that they were going to be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. But then we read in Daniel 9, No one understands this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So let me try and articulate that weird language right there. He's saying, we will be out of exile, not in 70 years. Although we returned from Babylon, we are still in exile because we've got all these foreign powers that is dominating us. But 
we will, we will be released. The anointed one will come. Not 70 years after, but 70 times 7. 7 is a very holy uh, letter in, in Hebrew. Is it num, num, numerology? Okay, uh, sort of number things. So 7 is, 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 is a very important um, a, a very important uh, uh, number. So what he's saying is that it's not going to be in 70 years, it's going to be in 770 years. So what's that math? What's 7 times 70? 490. Well done, Amy. 490 years. And what will happen in 490 years? Well, the anointed one, you know what's another t term for the anointed one? The Messiah, the Christ, will come, and we will take care of these powers. Now, here's the thing, friends. If the Babylonian exile ended around you know, 500 BC, again, broad brushstrokes, and these people are counting 490 years after that, then we are sort of here in the time of Jesus. And during that time, there was a massive messianic expectation. So people had this anticipation. In the same way that we have prophecies today, right? There's always some guy who's doing the math. Oh, this is what, uh, uh, what, what, what is going on here, and this is when God will return, and then it happens, and then the world didn't end, and then they just recalculate, and then they do another prediction, and you know, it's, it's sort of this never-ending game. So people have been doing this forever, and they, they had this massive messianic expectation. Something is going to happen. The anointed one will, will finally fulfill Daniel's prophecy. This son of man will, will come and sort everything out. And what will happen then? Well, again, the Jewish hope. We need to understand the Jewish hope here. The first thing that will happen is God's presence will return to the temple. Remember, his presence was, was left the temple in Ezekiel 10. So when God comes back, his presence will come back with it, and that's great news. Also, what can we expect of this anointed one? Well, he's the true king, friends. He is the David. He's going to be uh, from, from the line of David. He will be this true king. He will be the Messiah. He will be the anointed one. So the true king will emerge. And... Um, we know that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and we know that he will finally take Israel out of exile, out of captivity. And a very famous passage there is Isaiah 11. Oh, not, not this one, but the next one. Isaiah 11. So this is what Isaiah 11 says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Not, not an outside center for the, for, the, for the box. Um, Jesse is David's dad, okay? So a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. I want you to remember that line. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. So this is the expectation. This king will be righteous. He will, he will, just according, uh, he will judge accordingly. And then he goes on and he says, And in that time the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
And then it goes on. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally uh, to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. I want you to notice a couple of themes in, in this Isaiah uh, passage. First of all, it's going to be a king from the line of Jesse. First, from the line of David, there will be a king. He will judge correctly, all right? So he will be a good king. And then we read about the exile will finally be over. Can you see that in, in, at the end it says, finally we will be br brought back from exile. Finally the exile will be over. That's the one bit. And then the other thing is, we have this language of the bear that will eat with the cow. And it, it, it's very bizarre. But does that remind you of something? What does that language remind you of? Revelation, yes. No, 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 you're right. But let's go back. Sort of the opposite of Revelation is... Where? Ah, there we go. You say it's so cool, the Garden of Eden. Um, the Garden of Eden. So, what Isaiah is foreseeing here is Eden restored. When the anointed one comes, he will take us out of exile, he will be a good king, and we will be back in Eden. Do you see those themes in this Isaiah 11? I know it's getting a little bit complicated, but are you somewhat with me? We can see that the anointed one will be a good king. We, will, we know he comes from David. We know that he will bring the tribes from exile and he will re-Edenize the world. That is what's going to happen. Okay, this was the Jewish hope. If we want to understand the Bible, we need to understand what all that bit in the middle is. And that is the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, right? Into the Gospels. And in Matthew 1, we read something. And when I say we read, I mean none of you have read it, which is a genealogy, right? So when we come to a genealogy, what do we do? We do the right thing and we skip it, okay? But if you pay close attention, there's a gem there. Remember, these guys were very, very smart, and they're trying to communicate truths to us that, that we cannot even begin to try and fathom. And then eventually, Matthew, he does us a favor, and he gives the following summary. In Matthew 1, verse 17, he says, After giving us this genealogy, thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, <laughs> what's going on? Seven is a holy number in the Hebrew imagination. The only thing more holy than seven is seven times two, that's 14. But how many sevens do you get between these moments? Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Six. Okay, that's the correct answer. You have six sevens. All right. Now, for this, just park that for a second because we need to do this. What happens every seventh day in in, in, in the, the life of a devout Jew. It's a Sabbath. He rests. What happens every seven years in the life 
of a devout Jew. It's just not quite. It's the Sabbath year. So you need to leave. You need to leave the land. You need to allow it to rest. And you must rest from your work as well in the seventh year. And then what happens every seven times seven? Jubilee. It's the year of Jubilee. What happens at the year of Jubilee? Well, you are supposed to allow your slaves to go free. God is not interested in any generational slavery. You are supposed to release people of their debt. And it is this, this great restart, which is, four, which is seven times seven. This is the year of, of, of Jubilee. Okay. So when Matthew is framing the beginning of his gospel, he says, there were seven generations, seven generations, seven generations, seven generations, seven, seven. We are six sevens. And then he says, and now we are at the Messiah. What is he saying? He is saying, this is the beginning of the jubilee of jubilees. Does that make sense? So if we say that there are, there's a jubilee every 49 Yes, this is exciting, whatever. This is the jubilee of jubilees. That is what Matthew is anticipating. That was what the Jewish, that the Jews of the time anticipated with their little calculation of, um, you know, from the exile, 490 years, now is the time the Messiah might pop up anytime soon. This is the expect expectation. This is the jubilee of, of jubilees. All right. And then Jesus starts his ministry in Nazareth. And you know what he does? He asks for the scroll, or maybe it was handed to him, the, the scroll of Isaiah. And on one Sabbath, he reads this. This comes from Luke 4, verse 16 to 21. Are you guys still with me? Okay. He reads this. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on a Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read it, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today... The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is he saying there? This is the Jubilee. He reads this text and he says, this is where we are at now. This is, remember we heard this in, I think, we heard this in Daniel, uh, one of Daniel's prophecies. The spirit of the Lord will be on him. This is the type of language that you use for the anointed one, all right? Um, and uh, just, just stick there to uh, stick with... It was in Isaiah 11, yeah. It was in Isaiah 11, okay. Um, let's just go back to, to Luke. To Luke. <laughs> to Luke 4, there we go. The spirit of the Lord is on me, and then he proclaims good news to the poor, all right? We, we again have that figure that... Uh, that, that king figure that will judge rightly. And then he says, this is the year of the Lord. All right. He proclaims prisoners to freedom, and he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is proclaiming. He's saying, this is Jubilee. If you want to make sense of Jesus, you need to understand him 
within his Jewish context, he is the Jubilee of Jubilees. As a matter of fact, he is the personification of this Jubilee. When they, when they celebrated Jubilee every 49 years, and I don't think they did a very good job, because for some, reasons, human, for some reason humans are not very good at releasing people of their debt and of, of their, their slaves. But when they did it, they were imitating something of the personification of the Jubilee that will eventually come. This is what Jesus is claiming. So how will this Jubilee play out? How will this year of the Lord, what would it look like? All right? And for this, we have to make a bit of a jump. I'm going to ask this a few times. Are you guys still with me? Okay. So now we move to John 11, verse 48. All right. So, so Jesus has been busy with his ministry. He was proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaim, proclaiming freedom to everybody that is captive. And then in John 11, he's causing a bit of a stir, and the following conversation takes place. So these, there are these people, these Jews saying, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So yes, Caiaphas saying, look, it's much better. We can make Jesus a scapegoat. If he dies, then, 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 then everybody gets their, their kick. And then our nation will not be taken away from us. The Romans will not uh, take us into exile. And then this is John's commentary. He did not say this, he being Caiaphas. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. Can you see again this theme that comes out here? The first thing that I want to point out is we often think that Jesus died for my sins. And that is, that is true. But we must be careful not to individualize it too quickly. He was the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. So he came to fulfill the hopes of, of, of all of Israel and to, to save the Jewish nation. That was what Jesus came to do. This is, why, this is how many understood Jesus' ministry. And then, when that happens, the exile will be over and the scattered children of God will be made one. So here's what happens, friends. Jesus, somehow, through his ministry, is acting out the history of Israel over and over again. When he is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he is giving them a new law on a mountain. Who is he in that moment? Moses. And the, the, the gospel writers goes, go, go to... They, they try to make it very clear that this is what is going on. He is a second Moses giving them the law. He, he calls 12 disciples. Why 12? He's calling the 12 nations of Israel into being. He's acting out that story. And then it, it, it just becomes more and more beautiful because eventually in, in John's gospel we read that Jesus came 
and he dwelt among us. But that dwelling among us should actually be translated as he tabernacled among us or he templed among us. What does that mean? It means that God's presence is finally back. God's presence that left, that we read about in Ezekiel 10, is finally back. God, in the very person of Jesus, is templing among us. Are you with me? God is back. So this, this, would, have been, this would have been profound, and that's why the... The, the gospel writers, who were all Jews, got so excited because the more they thought about it, the more they studied the scriptures, they realized that Jesus is the fulfillment of their hope. He is the promise made to Israel. Eventually, he is a king as well. How does that happen? He's crowned with a crown of thorns. And in that tragic way... We, we read above the, the, the cross, King of the Jews. There's his inauguration. He's the king as well. God's presence is back. The anointed one is here. But in a way nobody expected. Everybody was looking in the wrong direction, but it was there in front of them all this time. They forgot to read Isaiah 53. Go do that at your own leisure. So here the servant king dies with his crown of a thorn. He's the true anointed one. And again, friends, these, these authors are, are super excited about this because all the promises made to, to Israel are fulfilled in, in Jesus. He is sort of, in his life, summarizing their, their story. And here's another theme that we need to pick up on. Through his death, what happens there? Just as Israel was exiled, he is exiled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Moves away from the presence of God, but he is restored. Again, acting out this perpetual story that Israel was always stuck in. Israel, who, who, who was supposed to bring the light to the nations, but that cannot manage it. Jesus is acting it out on behalf of Israel. He dies, he's, he goes into exile, but he is restored again. And friends... We're going to spend a whole sermon on the following point, but let me just say this. The gospel writers make a point of telling us that when Jesus rose, he rose in a garden tomb. When, the, when Maria saw him, she, mistake, she, she mistakenly identified him as a what? As a gardener. Why? Because this is a re, this is an Eden moment. This is that moment where Eden is breaking into this world of thorns and thistles. This is God's new creation. He is re-Eden. We see the king who brings justice from the Davidic line. We see the temple who temples among us. This is the very place where heaven and earth meet. And we also see that promise of creation healed and restored, that vision of Isaiah 11 where the, the, the lamb and the bear and the, the lion and the, and the baby will, will be among each other. So what about this? What, what, what of this? In Luke 24, what about this? What, 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 what is the message? In Luke 24, 
we read about the Imam's disciples. And, and you've got these two people walking away from Jerusalem, and they are very, they are very despondent. And they say, they say, we thought that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. They're very depressed because he's now died, and now some people are claiming that they saw him. And then Jesus, what does he do? He starts by opening the gospel, opening the scriptures. And we read that those two Emma's disciples, when Jesus eventually disappears, they say, didn't we feel our hearts burning inside of us when he showed us how this is how the Christ had to suffer? When, he, when they expanded on the scripture, when he expanded on the scripture and showed it to them. Because friends, eventually... This is the greatest story ever told. And, and we need to understand the wonderful themes and the flow of this, of this book. And we need to find ourselves in that story. And when we do it, and when we study it, and when we see God's salvation plan, we cannot do anything other but feel our hearts burn from the inside. And that burning heart is an invitation to take part in that story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful story of salvation, how you refuse to give up on, on our pride and arrogance and human dysfunction. And every time we send ourselves into exile, there's a rescue mission to begin again and to begin again. We thank you, Lord, that you did not give up on us and that eventually where we failed, failed to obey the law, failed to rule justly, failed to be a light to the nations, you are the one comes and, and does it on our behalf, experience the exile on our behalf, and brings restoration, brings a new creation. Lord Jesus, it's our prayer that we can experience, that we can, we can find ourselves within that story, that we will study the scriptures as so many people did afterwards, and uh, the Apostle Paul and, and so many others when the church uh, spread like a wildfire, studying the scriptures and seeing, oh my goodness, this is really how God came to redeem the world. I think it's possible for us, Lord, to sometimes just be very complacent with that message. But I pray, Lord, that we will rediscover the joys and the glory of that, that wonderful redeeming act. May our hearts burn over from it, Lord. And may we take part in this wonderful work of new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.